0: Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana.
1: And I'm David.
0: And today we watched The Pelican Brief.
1: A law student uncovers a conspiracy putting herself and others in danger. This is not a good movie.
0: It's not. I... It's also not a very good book because I did read the book when this came out.
1: It's really fascinating to know who wound up writing and directing this movie Mm -hmm. and the fact that he's made a really important movie that's very similar to this but this is supposed to be a conspiracy thriller and yet it's too fucking complicated to be a conspiracy thriller
0: (laughs) i don't think it's too complicated i think they don't explain it well enough up front because here's the issue this is a very complex like there there's a scheme happening and they all the people who enacted it thought we're so fucking smart no one's ever going to figure this out. This chick figures it out. She figures it out very quickly actually. But they don't spend enough time solidifying the fact that this should not be something someone could figure out much less a law student.
1: So, okay. Interestingly enough to me, I'm gonna go ahead and bring this up now. Our our director directed another conspiracy thriller that is a very true story. Okay. And that is all the president's men. Okay. Of Woodward and Bernstein unraveling the Nixon conspiracy. That story
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the book, I might add, which is an excellent book along mm-hmm. with being an excellent film, unravels the conspiracy slowly in pieces as though they were discovering it. This movie uncovers the conspiracy immediately, and then tries to piecemeal it for the viewer. But we've lost all of the tension because we know she figured it out. We know Julia Roberts is a movie star. She's in this movie. And by 1993, there's no doubt here, right? This is a movie star actress. So we know as much as she demurs and says, well, I don't know if I figured this out. No, she figured it out. And so now we're left to piece that together with none of the tension of has she actually figured it out or not?
0: So I will say this. I read the book and the book is better than this movie, but it's very clear in the book that John Grisham is trying to have a female protagonist. because At this point, he'd become very famous, firm, but it was just like, okay, you got to write ladies. And that's what the Pelican Brief was. And it wasn't it wasn't his best.
1: This is a movie that's death by a thousand cuts. It's not that it's bad on its face. Hmm. It's that the choices that they made throughout the production of this film just made it really boring. And it's not a terrible movie, but it's a really bland movie for what an amazingly interesting story it could be.
0: Well, yeah, it's just that the the tension should first come from, what is this conspiracy? And then it should be, who's involved?
1: While having a law student being threatened with their life for no good reason.
0: Well, and she's the one who's figuring it out. Yeah. That's where the tensions really come from, and it's not there. None. It's just not there.
1: Well, audiences certainly didn't agree with us. The cost of this movie was Get ready for this number, $45 million. What? Yeah. How? I have to believe cast eh. is a good chunk of that. We have legitimate movie stars.
0: Denzel, yes. Julia, a little bit of money, but she he Denzel was definitely getting more than her for this. Well,
1: some of the Arpons involved here, too. Sure. But also, then, I'm sure DC locations and... Stopping traffic for crap and who knows what else. Mm-hmm. It grossed one hundred and ninety-five million dollars.
0: Mm, it did pretty good.
1: It was a PG thirteen political thriller mm-hmm. in the nineties. You know, this is this is very standard fare. I think honestly, this is one of those benchmark political thriller movies from the nineties. It's not good. It's not bad. But everybody kind of holds it up to this kind of standard. Can you make an audience interested enough with a complicated premise to string them along while weird things happen to a protagonist?
0: No. <laughs> not, not in this one.
1: No, definitely not, but I feel like everybody else judged themselves against this movie in some way.
0: It's just, it's not that interesting. No. it's Like, I like the political arguments. I like that whole aspect, but that is maybe 30 minutes of the film. The rest of it, meh. <sighs> It's not
1: good, and I wish we were watching a political thriller that was based on real life, because that's honestly more interesting than what they present here. (laughs) Let's talk about our writing. We have to start with a man you've already discussed, one John Grisham. Mm -hmm. Now, he is obviously an incredibly big deal of a novelist. I am going to give you the credits of the books he has written that have been made into films or television. All right. And in order of that, because uh, his books were writ, th- the books he wrote were written in a different order than when they were made into films. Sure. Before this, he only had one thing made into a film, which is The Firm. Mm-hmm. But that was enough <laughs> to oh, be a yeah. big fucking deal. <laughs> After this, he wrote The Client, which was also eventually made into a television show. It's a great movie, though. A Time to Kill, The Chamber, The Rainmaker, The Gingerbread Man, Runaway Jury, and Christmas with the Cranks. It's based off of a Christmas novel he wrote. He's recently gotten into more like family fair in what he writes.
0: Yeah, Christmas with the Cranks was originally surviving Christmas. Yes. And it's about a family who the premise is the same, but just as the jumping-off point. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's I've read a lot of his books because we were a John Grisham House. Like I'm my mom saying. Like, you know, you can sell books when I don't even know what it's about, but if I see your name on it, I'm buying it. That's fair. But, I mean, and his books are good. He can write very well. They do become a little procedural. That's fine.
1: But he. He attacks topics from a specific direction in each story. Yes. That's what makes him interesting. And he was a lawyer. So, I mean.
0: I think of the films that have been made into movies, I think the client is the best one. Interesting. Uh, Like, based on having read the book, I think the client is the best book. The firm's a great movie, though. The book is better because they completely changed the ending.
1: Oh, I'm sure the book is better, but the movie was top notch.
0: Movie was pretty good.
1: And I will say, for a faithful adaptation and a solid but more low-key movie, The Rainmaker. Oh, Rainmaker was a great movie. Really good movie, really good book. Not what you're expecting from a legal thriller. No, not at all. Now, our writer is somebody we have talked about very recently, Alan J. Pacula. He wrote, before this, the screenplays for Sophie's Choice and Presumed Innocent. Okay. Now, he is known for being a director more than a writer. We noted this during Sophie's Choice, where we thought the directing was very good and interesting, but the writing was not great. Fair. So what do we think about the writing here?
0: I I think it's bland, but I think it's because the story is bland.
1: Well, it's also so plot heavy. There's so much that has to happen in this film. Yes. This is a two and a half hour film.
0: This film should not be two and a half hours.
1: It's so long, and it's because the story is so dense. Mm-hmm. Like, this shouldn't be a movie, it should be a miniseries. Yeah, it doesn't need to be a full, like, multi year series of anything, but it needs to be like a six or eight episode miniseries where you're coming at it from different angles as you build the conspiracy up alongside Darby being pursued throughout this whole thing. Mm-hmm but you just slowly build until you figure out everything and it explodes. And instead, they're just trying to create a straight narrative, which you just have to pack so much plot in that you have no time to develop the characters. Like, all of these characters are pretty much just shells, including Darby, which sucks.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just very pieces on a chessboard. And it shouldn't be that way. That's not what makes this type of film interesting.
1: Political thrillers really only work when you have some depth of character you're revealing through it.
0: The characters have to have some stakes to the actual problem. And the problem has to be interesting and revealed to us and solved with us in a way that, again, captures your attention. This film does not have those things. And I
1: think the really frustrating part is, you know, within the first 10 to 15 minutes of this movie, it's never going to give you that satisfaction. And now you have the rest of this movie to slog through because you already know it's not going to give you what you want. That's the most frustrating part to me of watching this movie in particular. (laughs) I can if you get me halfway through and then it falls apart, I can give you a little more credit. Yeah, but. When, in the first five minutes or ten, I'm just like, "Oh, God, oh no,
0: also, you know, Sam Shepard as the law professor,, wah, wah,
1: wah. that's not that bad. He did a good job. He's none of this is any of the actors' fault at all, all right. Well, John Grisham actually wrote this book with Julia Roberts in mind for a film adaptation all right. He had obviously been approached about film rights, but, The Firm was the first big breakthrough. And like a lot of different things, you know, they were buying the film rights as soon as they saw galley editions of the book. Yep. But Grisham actually campaigned for Roberts to be cast in the role. I knew that. Normally, he does not get involved in signing his film rights. He just, you know... He just
0: sells them and moves on.
1: He just works with his agent to get a fair price and and then moves on. But this one, he actually campaigned with her. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough... They didn't even have a full book when they bought the film rights to this. He had a sample Mm. of the story and the rights were purchased, which I get. This is a wild premise that would make an interesting film based off of just the idea. And when Julia Roberts read the book, once he finished it, she agreed to take the role without even seeing the script. She was excited just to take this character.
0: Yeah, get
1: that don't blame anybody but i don't think it works out that well the law firm of white and blazevich mentioned in the film is a take on chicago firm kirkland and ellis an old school law firm best known for forcing cbs to stop a 60 minutes interview implicating big tobacco ceos from hiding evidence of the hazards of smoking Mm. and one fun note FBI director F. Denton-Voyles, who appears in this film, is a fixture in all of the Grisham novels involving the FBI. So anytime the FBI pops up in one of these, F. Denton-Voyles is a character involved in it. Also, Stephen Hill, the original DA on Law & Order, plays that character in The Firm. Okay. Now let's talk about our directing, which I think is better. Mm -hmm. It is also Alan J. Pacula. Before this, he directed The Sterile Cuckoo, Clute, The Parallax View, All the President's Men, Comes a Horseman, Starting Over, Sophie's Choice, Dream Lover, Orphans, and Presumed Innocent, and after he directed The Devil's Own. What do we think of the directing of this movie? Meh. It's serviceable. hmm I mean, the man knows how to shoot thrillers. Yeah. Clearly. Even Sophie's Choice, there are so many moments when we talked about of when the moment needs to land, he had it nailed. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I don't know if it's that you can't save this script or if it's just that it's it's so bland that it doesn't mean anything. But like, I don't feel any of the tension that he's clearly trying to bring.
0: It is very bland. And I do think... I I do think that no matter what you do directing-wise, your script is not, it doesn't have anything there. I think the only thing you can add to it is, you know, levity between characters who have good chemistry. After that, who cares? There's nothing there.
1: Well, and it goes zero to 60 back and forth between, like, slow unraveling and Darby's about to get murdered. Yeah. And it's like, somewhere you have to give us something in between that. Like the tension needs to actually raise naturally. Mm-hmm. Alan J. Pacula filmed this in sequence, which why weird for this movie makes zero
0: sense. Okay,
1: unless he was trying to like do the Darby won't reveal anything, and they want to unravel it for everybody involved. But it's not like that worked for any good reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Also, the production used Panavision anamorphic lenses. For wide-sweeping shots, Oliver Stone wound up gifting them to the production. He was intending to use them for natural-born killers, but instead he decided to film that movie in a standard screen format, so he offered them to somebody else within the studio, and Pacula took him up on
0: it. Okay.
1: So we do get some grand views of the White House and things, but uh, to what effect... Nothing about the way this movie is presented. Yeah, I think wide angle lenses does not make sense for a movie that's supposed to be taut and tight and creepy.
0: No. <laughs> it really it really doesn't. Uh, all right. Let's talk about
1: maybe some of the few bright shining moments in this movie. Okay. And I had to really work around the credits sequence of the film, because people who are high up in the credits, look, this movie is like a cast of thousands. Mm-hmm. And there's only three characters who have like very serious roles involved here. Everybody else, for all intents, is an Arpon.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: But our three main actors start with somebody we just talked about a couple episodes ago, Julia Roberts playing Darby Shaw. Julia. What do we think about Julia Roberts in this
0: film? She's good.
1: She's doing about everything she can for the role, but it doesn't ever quite feel like enough. And it makes me wonder if you went through like all of Julia's stuff, if it's like shit script, you're not the kind of actress who can really push that beyond. Mm-hmm. And again, that is not a slight to anybody that we say that about. There are just some actors who can elevate and some actors who that's not their thing. They bring what they bring, and that's what they're there Mm -hmm. for. I feel like Julia Roberts is more of a presence actress, and no amount of presence is going to save this character from being boring as shit. She's at least believable.
0: She is. She's very good. It's just, again, the story doesn't doesn't give her a whole lot.
1: She just has to be confused and scared for most of the time. And she doesn't ever, it doesn't feel like she ever gets a chance to finally have the upper hand in any way mm-hmm. until like the very, very end. And, you know, even then it's just getting shot at. Um, I just, it stinks. It's, it feels like a waste of Julia Roberts, someone who can do so many things so well. Julia did spend some time at Tulane Law School to prepare for the role. She attended some classes with different law students. And several of the students in the classroom scene are Tulane Law students from the class of 1994. Okay. Then we talk about her cohort in this film, Denzel Washington, playing Gray Grantham. I'm not going to give you Denzel's credits.
0: Denzel fucking Washington.
1: Exactly. You know. What do we think of Denzel in this movie?
0: (sighs) It's just very standard Denzel. It's
1: interesting because I think they wanted him to be a little bit more scuzzy, a little bit more of dogged reporter who flirts the line between actually protecting Darby and fights for the story. Mm -hmm. But Denzel's just being Denzel. It almost feels like Denzel knows that this movie is not good. Yes. (laughs) There's a little bit of that. And I'm going to say this. I don't know that there's quite as good of chemistry between Denzel and Julia. That's not to say there are no reports that there was like beef or any issues with them. I just don't know on screen if they work that well together.
0: I think that's to do with the script.
1: That's probably true.
0: And also I feel like I don't, I can't remember for sure. I can't remember if they had a romance in the book but it feels like they wanted to imply that that could happen But then, like, those scenes got cut. Like, I don't know.
1: While Darby Shaw and Grey Grantham are romantically involved in the
0: book. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay.
1: And Julia Roberts wanted to include the romance. Okay. Denzel decided against it.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Originally, Grey Grantham was a white character. Oh, okay. And Denzel Washington felt that in 1993, audiences were still not interested or would be opposed to an interracial romance.
0: I, I mean,
1: if it's Denzel making that decision,
0: it's Denzel making the decision. I don't have a problem with that. I hate I hate that being a thing. Uh, 1993 whatever.
1: He doesn't feel that way anymore. I, I Tragedy of Macbeth.
0: That's that's fine. I don't think a romance between them would add anything to this story. And honestly, it would make Darby look bad and then well she just sleeps with all of the male authority figures in her life that's what that's like the conversation would become so i i think it's good that there's not a romance there i wish they had written it to better allow them to have a friendship without any of the sexual tension while also allowing there to be that life or death you know situation that's happening
1: there is no humor in this movie Mm. It is a completely humorless fucking movie.
0: And John Grisham is funny. That man can be funny.
1: Yeah, that's the problem. There's mm-hmm. no fucking humor whatsoever. And at some point, both of these characters need to at least recognize how fucking ridiculous all of this is. Because it's a ridiculous premise. But it is the kind of ridiculous shit that politicians get up to regularly. Oh, sure. So, ah... Uh, it's a confluence of all of it, but it's fascinating to be like, sometimes when you put two movie stars who are like near the peak of their powers, and they're both incredible actors, they don't always work together, especially if the script's not helping them.
0: Yeah, it just doesn't come together properly.
1: Also like Julia, Denzel spent time working with Washington Post editors and reporters to prepare for them. Alright, finally, and I did not think this guy would be my third lead actor here, but he's the only other constant in the film Tony Goldwyn playing Fletcher Cole. Now, before this, Tony Goldwyn was in Friday the 13th, Part 6 Jason Lives and Ghost. Okay. After this, he's in Reckless Nixon Kiss the Girls Tarzan from 1999. the Sixth Day, Bounce, An American Rhapsody, The Last Samurai, The Last House on the Left from 2009, The Mechanic, Scandal on Television, Divergent, King Richard, and The Hot Zone on Television, and coming soon, he will be one of the 80 million people in Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Hmm. What do we think of Tony Goldwyn in this movie?
0: He's fine.
1: I mean, he's the closest thing we get to a scene stealer.
0: True. True. He's fine. I like him. To me, I just look at him and go, he's the president from Scandal. (laughs) And I like Tony Goldwyn. He's a good actor, but he has a very particular lane, and it's politician. Also, lawyer. Those are his lanes.
1: I mean, true. I like that this is the flip side of that. It feels like this wound up being one of his biggest auditions for Scandal, for sure, because he's even slimier here as the guy behind the president. The chief of staff who's yeah. going to one day take his place at the top echelon of power. And we'll throw the president under the bus if he absolutely needs to. Oh, sure. It's just so funny because like all these all these different people that are in this movie, and I'm expecting somebody to have way bigger screen time, and Tony Goldwyn <laughs> winds up being the kind of villain. That's the other really hard part about this movie is that there really isn't a villain. Like, our one really bad, bad guy gets killed halfway through the movie. Yeah. And so at a certain point, uh, again, this is common in political thrillers. There isn't ever really a bad guy. It's the conspiracy is the bad guy and the cover-up is the bad guy. Mm -hmm. But you, again, your plot has to be such that you feel that. And all these bad guys are just a part of this one big machine coming after our protagonist. Yes. And none of that happens. (laughs) And, you know, Fletcher doesn't ever feel like a threat, just like none of these other people do at any point. So I... All right, let's talk about these Arpons, because holy crap, it's a lot of very famous people. Mm Mm-hmm. Sam Shepard as Thomas Callahan. We have discussed him three different times on this show. Francis, The Right Stuff, and Steel Magnolias. You hate him? I think he's fine in this movie.
0: I just don't care about him.
1: John Hurd playing Gavin Verheek. The dad from Home Alone, big. He was in Beaches. This guy could do anything, right? Like, he could just do anything. It's so weird to think about, because you don't think about him as a guy who can do anything, because you just think of him as dad from Home Alone. William Atherton, playing Bob Gaminsky, head of the CIA. He's in Die Hard, Ghostbusters, and was the lead in The Day of the Locust.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Robert Culp, playing our president. He was in I Spy back in the 1960s, and he also was the lead in The Greatest American Hero. He's very much a television guy, but that works perfectly for the slimy TV president we get in this movie. Yep. They cast that one perfectly.
0: They did. They truly did.
1: Stanley Tucci as Kamel. Wow.
0: He's such a bad dude.
1: He has like 10 words
0: in this movie. Yeah, he barely talks, but I love him.
1: And he's so imposing the whole time he's in the movie. I hate that they kill him halfway through, but it's kind of smart. But wow. Stanley fucking Tucci. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Hugh McCronin playing Justice Rosenberg. He is the husband of Jessica Tandy, and we talked about him briefly in The World According to Garp. Mm -hmm. John Lithgow playing Smith Keene, the editor at the Washington Post. What else is there to say about Lithgow?
0: Not much.
1: How about somebody we haven't brought up here, Cynthia Nixon as Alice Stark?
0: That was... Uh, not like shocking, but I was just like, oh my god, she looks like such a baby.
1: It's a pull from the way back, like,
0: yeah, but like 6 years later she'd be on sex in the city. Mm-hmm. That's what's crazy.
1: But it's it's interesting cuz it's like it doesn't take a whole lot to take her look and be like, "No, law student. You're a little bit younger, we give you some bangs. You're a law student in the 90s." Fair. I, and then she grew up and became a lawyer in New York City. <laughs> No, there's there's a little conspiracy fun thing to play with there. Yes. Christopher Murray playing Rupert in the film. This is Nick Newport Sr. from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> Joe Crest as the song and dance man from the bar. He is Ted Wheeler in Stranger Things.
0: Oh, yeah. That guy looks... He looks wildly different than he does in Stranger Things. <laughs> like, they make him look like a fuddy-duddy. Very well. It's pretty funny. It's pretty good.
1: Edwin Newman playing himself. He was a famous NBC News anchor who frequently hosted Meet the Press. So he shows up in the, the interviews with Greg Grantham the whole time. Mm-hmm. And Danny Kamen playing Hooten. Now, here's an interesting thing. This guy tried acting, but he wound up becoming a U.S. attorney, okay. a federal attorney, and he pioneered prosecutions for film piracy. So he is the man responsible for anti-piracy warnings on tapes and DVDs, and he tried the largest film piracy case to ever receive prison time. Mm. Then he came around and wound up acting again for a while after his father passed away. He's still doing bit parts and acting. Um, I don't know if he's retired from practice or just, you know, is serving as of counsel, but he he just does side acting on the side. Okay. So it's a fascinating little story of this dude. But uh, if you ever want to wonder about all the the piracy warnings, that guy's responsible. So boo or cheer him however you feel fit. Okay. All right. Let's go to some trivia.
0: Trivia.
1: The sets for the film Dave were used for the White House scenes for this film.
0: Wow. That's a great movie. (laughs) Man, Dave is good.
1: Now, some of this music might sound very familiar to you if you are a 90s movie lover. Because James Horner, the composer of this film, reused a lot of music from this film for his score for Apollo 13, particularly the music used in the bank parking garage scene. Okay. I was like, oh, now I remember these piano stings and creepy thriller music. And yeah, it's all from the the spaceship explosions. Hmm. Blue, and especially turquoise or teal, plays a very large role in the color palette and scheme of the film. Specifically, it's very notable that the pelican brief itself is in a bound turquoise notebook. This may be an allusion to the ocean and the potential threat to the environment. Very cool. The painting next to Grantham's bed is a piece by French painter Bernard Lejoux titled Homage to Martin Luther King. Across the bottom is the phrase, quote, Nonviolent protest is the most effective weapon of an oppressed people. Unquote. The bomb in Grantham's car in the parking garage uses a mercury switch. A glass ampule contains a pair of contacts and a small amount of mercury. The switch is designed so that when it is moved, the mercury touches the leads, completing the circuit and detonating the bomb. Mm. When the president questions Fletcher Cole's idea of wearing a cardigan to address the nation on. The Assassination of the Supreme Court Justices. This is very much based on real life because Jimmy Carter wore a cardigan to address the nation on the fuel shortages in the late 1970s. It did not go over well. During filming, Alan J. Pakula pulled a prank involving Julia Roberts and then-husband Lyle Lovett. This is a wholesome prank, I will mind you. Okay. Roberts was filming a scene where she was talking with Gavin Verheek, and Pacula instead sent Lyle Lovett the lines to read to Julia. Lovett was touring at the time, and he was away from where filming was taking place. Roberts performed the scene completely straight, not knowing who she was reading against over the phone. It was not until they cut the scene that she finally realized that it was Lyle Lovett on the phone opposite her. That's the best kind of prank.
0: That's a harmless prank.
1: That was adorable. Cute. And that leads us to ratings for each film. We have a specific rating system for this film. Car bombs. There's a lot of them. There's two. And that's how many I'm going to give this
0: movie. I agree. I think that's fair. <laughs> it bombs.
1: It, it's, it definitely bombs. It's just, it's so mediocre mm-hmm. in every way. Like, it's, it's fine it's crafted it's not like people just slapped this together
0: mm-hmm.
1: but the story is just so bland and boring mm-hmm. for what a political thriller should be and it, and it basically reveals its hand so quickly that you're just left going so now I have to just sit through the rest of this movie too it's at least well constructed I'll give it that well maybe let's talk about a movie that involves a bomb that's a little bit better what do you think okay next time it's not a car bomb a bomb on a bus oh because we're gonna watch a movie that god help me i've never seen and i really need to watch
0: mm-hmm.
1: we're gonna talk about speed
0: speed
1: yon debont, keanu reeves sandra bullock 55 miles an hour yep we do love a simple premise
0: we you know they're effective they work really well yeah i i I can't believe you haven't watched this one. This is one that we had on like a loop in our house at one point.
1: R-rated films are a, uh, a dark spot in my movie lexicon.
0: Seriously, geez. Mm. All right, well, until next time.
1: Have a good movie.